Welcome to episode 17 of the Revolution Podcast, where I, your host Ryan, sit down with industry experts to discuss the latest trends in e-mobility, clean tech, and the future of transportation. Today I'm joined by Peter Bracken, former professional rugby union player turned e-mobility advocate, who's aiming to set two world firsts in e-mobility. Into the episode we go. Thank you for joining the podcast, Peter. I tend to start each podcast by asking my guests to introduce themselves. I think in this case, as a former professional rugby player, your path to e-mobility is a unique one and really fascinating. So I'd love to know about your story. Oh, brilliant. Uh, great to be on the show, Ryan. Thank you for the uh, invite. Um, yeah, so the, rugby obviously was my main uh, background. I played all sorts of sport uh, growing up. and uh, But uh, yeah, rugby became the main thing. Ended up uh, playing um, professionally for, for 10 years and uh, really, really enjoyed it. It was a great thing to do. Um, while I was young and uh, gone into the other things uh, since, but absolutely fantastic career to have. You have your ups and downs or whatever, but it builds, it certainly builds you as a person, builds your commitment and your work ethic and your communication skills and all, all that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it was certainly good while it lasted. Okay, great. And before we dive into the e-mobility stuff, I'd love to discuss your career as a rugby player, particularly because you're the first sports person I've welcomed on the podcast. I also think it's a big part of your story and probably influences your motivation and desire for your current passion in e-mobility. So this is a bit cliche, but was it always a dream to be a rugby player? And as a kid, when your teacher asked you what you wanted to be when you were older, did you say rugby player? I actually did that. Um, Yeah, you know, I remember since I was six years of age, um, you know, gone down to the rugby club. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to play for Ireland. I'm going to, you know, uh, yeah. And I did, you know, I pretty much did that, um, uh, ups and downs along the way, but yeah. Um, I suppose it's either in you or not. And like, you know, even growing up, I was always one of the better guys talent wise on the team but you know in my local club on my team I might be in the top five but I was never the best player on the team my local club was Tullamore Rugby Club and uh, you know I might have been I was definitely not the best player even on the under 14s under 16 stuff going up but I I was okay I was decent but I just wanted it more and I worked harder I did all the extra bits before anyone else was doing it or anyone kind of of my own peer group uh, were doing it. And I suppose I, I made all the sacrifices to do that. You know, I remember when I was four or 15, um, basically getting banned out of the local gym because I was too young and uh, people didn't know as much about sports science back then. And they said, oh, don't be doing those weights and slow you down, which is the exact opposite. But um, so I used to sneak in. I remember climbing up, getting a ladder and climbing up in the small window, going down at like six o'clock in the morning to do training and get out of there before the first person would come in. Did that for a couple of years until I got caught. Then I I liberated a key um, out of nowhere and I was back in. So eventually, 
I suddenly then turned 18 and said, well, they can't really stop me doing that now. But uh, I'm glad I did. Um, And yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, uh, doing all those extra things and and, and again work my way up and you know I, I started to make regional teams and national underage teams and I said yeah I'm, I'm probably good enough to do this and I definitely have to work that to, to do it and uh, I give it my best shot but there's no guarantees lots of things can happen injuries all that kind of stuff but it's worth giving a try and uh, yeah since six years of age I wanted to be a professional rugby player even though Back then, rugby wasn't even professional. It was still an amateur game. But I knew somehow, some way, I'd end up making a living out of it. And uh, I did that for a number of years. Yeah, well, a common misconception in sports is that talent is everything. But hard work goes just as far, if not even further, than talent. So for our listeners who are not familiar with rugby, I think it's easy to forget that just because you and I come from two of the biggest rugby nations in Ireland and England... Not every country plays rugby, so a quick explanation for our listeners is that it is a full contact sport that originated in England in the 19th century. More than 6 million people play worldwide, making it the ninth most popular sport in the world. It is most popular in Commonwealth countries and has some striking similarities to American football. Ireland is one of the biggest and most successful rugby nations in the world, and with that being said, I wanted to ask about the experience as a youth player in Ireland trying to make it professional and how the system works. I think it's very well-rounded, uh, actually, Ryan. I think we have a very good system over here in Ireland. Uh, you're right, we're always, you know, in, in and out of the top five. Before the last Rugby World Cup, we were number one in the world for, you know, a couple of months. Um, but, you know, we're generally, we're definitely always in the top ten. Um, and uh, we had a decent Six Nations uh, uh, this year, which the main... Uh, rugby competition between the Northern Hemisphere teams and um, but in Ireland yes um, I suppose back in my day um, rugby had just turned professional when I was leaving school so I didn't turn pro until I was 23 years of age so I went to university did my studies did all that did you know train pretty much as a pro uh, while I was in university and then picked up my first contract and went from there. Nowadays, guys are going straight out of school and going into professional setups. Uh, we have four provinces here in Ireland. So we've got Connacht, Ulster, Leinster and Munster and the four provinces, four regions. And, you know, they get picked up at underage. Like there's sub-academies now where guys get brought in at 14, 15 years of age and they get spotted. And by the time they turn, leave school, you know, it's narrowed down just to the select few. And then it's even cut again to actually get a full-time professional contract. So like the numbers are tiny. It's just like any other, it's 0.001% of people that actually make it. But I always knew, even if you, if I don't make it or if guys don't make it, the, those life skills of trying to pursue that um, stand to you massively. And um uh, but we have a good system because even guys that go in straight from school, it's pretty much you have to. It's a part of your contract that you have to either study or do an apprenticeship or do something along the lines that if you get an injury or you just don't make it, that you have something to go back um, fall back on when you leave rugby. Now, other countries may not be quite as good, but 
you know, there's rugby players unions in pretty much all the big rugby nations now, and they're making sure that guys, uh, it's educating guys as well as the, the unions, but I think rugby generally, globally, they do see that it's, it's important that guys and and girls, uh, you know, ladies rugby is becoming professional in some countries, but when players uh, leave, uh, that they're studying or doing pursuing something else, that when they retire for whatever reason, just old age or whatever, that they can fall back into something else. Um, and you know, that, that's important, but it's good mentally yeah, as well. Like it's good to have a hobby or a pastime that you're interested in, that you can get away from just, you know, sport, sport, sport all the time, because, you know, most people have a day job and then they play sport for fun. But when sport is your job, you, you need to go the other way. You need to have something to get away from it. So, um, yeah, we have a good system here in Ireland, good system in, 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 in all the Six Nations countries, as well um i think world rugby we need to help the smaller nations out a bit more the, uh, especially the pacific islands um you know tonga samoa fiji uh, countries like that cook islands produce an awful lot of good rugby players for all around the world but they're not necessarily looked after as well as they probably should be but you know um just the pacific islands rugby uh, players union now who are doing great work so all in all i think rugby is a good place because at the end of the day for 99.9 presented players that finish up they don't it's not like football where you're a millionaire you can live for the rest of your life you know a lot of sports are like that maybe american football guys can um, retire quite handsomely, but in Ireland or in rugby generally, that's not the case. And but again, if you're ambitious and successful in one career, you know you you know you're not going to be happy with that once you retire. You want to be successful in your second career. Indeed. So in terms of the income from rugby, it can't really be compared to football, with the average salary of a Premier League football player being sixty thousand pounds a week. To some extent, I can see some positives in this because rugby players know they might have to start a second career after finishing rugby and therefore learn skills in other areas. What do you think about that concept? Well, look, if you're, if you're playing, if I was playing big, big money when I was playing, I'd have taken it. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, but, you know, it does have its advantages that you're always conscious of you know, you're always focused, look, I'm playing, I'm playing rugby now, it's it's all great, but it does focus you on, okay, this could finish up any day, where am I? Um, regards and, you know, um, so you can't rest on your laurels. Now, I know there's a lot of footballers and, and you know, golfers and guys that, girls that make big money and you know they do great stuff with it like not every sports person who makes billions and loses it all within a couple of years like that does happen but i think that's fairly rare i think there's more education around um all sports now that you know we've all seen the stories of athletes you know especially i suppose back in the 80s 90s and, you know, they were, you know, multi-multi-billionaires and then they're broke a couple of years later, you know. So no one, I think most people have learned from that and most sports organizations have learned from that. You will get the odd person that will go that way. Um, but definitely focuses your mind, doesn't, 
your ego, I think it keeps you um, fairly grounded as well. So, you know, um, well, with all sports people, but I, I think rugby has a real advantage there that um, for, for any employer, you know, and, um, any retiring sports person, whether that be rugby or whatever, is a huge, huge asset. And no, they definitely, most likely will not have 10 years experience in your industry. Of course they haven't because they've been playing sport, but all those soft skills like the resilience, the communication skills, the decision-making, um, you know, just performing under pressure, used to high performance environments, all that kind of stuff, stuff that you can't buy, stuff that people will write down on a CV, but you don't really know they have it until, you know, they're a couple of months down the line. Literally, you're guaranteed that with a sportsman or a sports person uh, coming out. So I think that's something that business should recognize a, a little bit more um, because, I still, I even found it, look, it's 10 years since I retired, but, you know, I I couldn't get a job for love nor money. Oh, Peter, you don't have experience in our, well, just give me six weeks and I'll be up to speed. Don't worry about it. And I have all the other skills that you really, really need. Which are, but, you know, I think that's beginning to change. Um, uh, but long and short of it, it, it does set you up for, for, for business, you know, sport does set you up nicely um, for business and uh, it, it certainly evolves you as a character and um, yeah um, as an employer I would never be shy in pretty much straight away employing any any uh, sports person that come across and if you don't have a role for them especially in big organizations find a role get them in there because they will create really good stuff for you yeah, that's a really intriguing point. And as you say, a sports person's skill set might be different to your traditional university educated person who started working in a corporate environment immediately after graduating. But it can also add a completely different perspective. I think in recent years, we have seen a rise in companies offering opportunities to people who didn't study at universities and took a non-conventional path. But I obviously can't comment from the sports perspective. So a couple more rugby related questions before we move on. What was your biggest success or proudest moment in your career? And on the opposite side, what was your biggest setback or disappointment? Right. Fair, fair enough. Good, great questions. <laughs> um, and, you know, they'll, they'll actually run straight into each other. So I start. So I suppose my biggest achievement was winning a European Rugby Championship Cup with Wasps, um, Wasps Rugby back in um, 2007. So that was just... Fantastic. Um, you know, we had a great team, great players, great coaches, great backroom staff, and it just all came together. Um, and, you know, obviously it didn't happen by luck, but look, I worked hard to get into that team. Um, but at the same time, it, it was great to be there and uh, be part of all that. And, you know, one of my sporting ambitions uh, came true. And yeah, look, that, that was uh just immense um you know t three weeks later i are you know i suppose six weeks later i had signed well i'd signed during the season uh to go to bristol and um and that was a disaster so <laughs> 
I arrived first day at Bristol and Bristol Rugby. Now, things have changed massively there now. They're just doing amazing stuff. You know, when I joined, I was expecting Bristol Rugby to be where they are now, but they weren't. So um, I'd certainly join them right now if I had it. <laughs> but anyway, um, and but lots of great people in Bristol Rugby. It's just, um, uh, you know, the coach that signed me had got the sack before I arrived and I was on the back foot straight away. And, you know, uh, I found it very difficult to get in. Uh, get a game so I'd just gone from being a European champion the only European person with a European Cup medal on the Bristol squad and then couldn't get a game for best part of two years so um, it just goes to show you don't really know what you're getting yourself into you try and make the best make the best decision possible but things out of your control like a, a coach change at the last minute can throw things out now that can work well for you that could have went the other way you know but but I found in my career I was a prop forward I played in the front row I was a tight head prop so number three and every coach that I've played for that has been a front row player that has played in my position when they were playing rated me rated me always I was always first choice and it just happens that the other coach, type of coach I've had in my career has always been a scrum half for some reason. So number nine, so a back. So pretty much the exact opposite type of player on the rugby team. And for some reason, none of them coaches have ever rated me. And I've struggled to get on teams that they've been coaches of. So <laughs> I would tend to go that. I think I was good enough because all the guys that used to play in my position picked me. The guys that didn't didn't pick me. So, um, but so you so you don't know. So um, I I I asked to leave there eventually, and I ended up in Harlequins for a couple of months, and I ended up playing in in Wales with the Gwent Newport Dragons and down in Carcassonne in France, and they were fantastic life experiences is as well. You know, um, so you have your ups and downs. So. But it builds you. It builds you as a character. Like everything was just going brilliantly. I reached the peak. I wanted to maybe get a few caps for Ireland and get into Ireland squad. And then I go to a club. I'm not even playing. So your value just now. I didn't disapprove. You know, I was hitting my peak as a front row player at that time, and I reckon had four or five massive years ahead of me. So, you know, when I retired, I kind of felt I'd underachieved a little bit, but. You know, you refocus, you know, eventually and you say, look, I did well. You know, I used my skill set as best I could and worked. I left everything out there as in I'm happy enough to say that, you know, I did everything in my power to be the best rugby player I could be. And, you know, um, and retired on that. So I'm, I'm happy enough doing that. Now, I've never officially retired. I've just haven't played professional rugby in in best part of nine, ten years. But I've played the odd charity game and coaching and all that kind of stuff. And I still really, really enjoy the sport. That's a really interesting story. And regardless of the setback that you had in your career, you still managed to achieve great things in the sport, including the European Cup, as you mentioned. So let's talk about that transition from professional sports person to life after. You do tend to hear a lot about those disaster stories of ex-professional athletes losing all their money shortly after retiring. But as you say, that's probably a small number in reality. Regardless, sports people retire much younger than in other professions, and you don't really have the choice to travel for the rest of your life. 
Was that something in the back of your mind, especially with a sport like rugby, where an injury can put a quick end to your career? Yeah, no, it was always on my mind. Um, So I kept my education going while I was playing rugby and I did um, some work experience in a few different industries while I was playing. So, you know, maybe you might have a day off during the week, a rest day. You know, I'd, I'd either use that as a family day, which in itself used to be fantastic. Like that was the great thing about rugby. You had the best of both worlds. The best of every world when you were playing well. Now, when you weren't playing well and you weren't getting picked, it's the worst job in the world. But if you are getting picked and you're playing well, it's the best in the world because you have what very few people ever get to experience. You have time and money. Okay, so, you know, a lot of financially successful people have no time to spend on other things in life. Then other people, you know, have all the time in the world, but, you know, for whatever reason, they're broke or whatever, you know. So without, um, um, so you end up having both. Um, but, you know, like, you know, there's a cliff coming. There's a cliff coming. So are you prepared for it? Now, all you can do is try and prepare your best. There's no guarantees once you um, uh, re- retire that you're going to pick anything up. There could be a long transition. For me, I still I don't believe I'm fully transitioned, you know, 10 years out of the game, but uh, I'm getting there. Um, but but for me, it, it it's been really good. It's been very, very challenging, I suppose. So I retired... Um, again, you know, I would have been one of the majority of players that, you know, had a bit of savings at the end of it, but wasn't on huge, the huge, phenomenal money. So, you know, you had a year really there of a little bit of leeway. Um, I retired into a worldwide recession and, I, you know, I investments and properties in different things and I got absolutely wiped out. Um, yeah, so pretty much went broke. Um, but I was as happy as Larry because I was a full-time father. When I retired, we were lucky as a family. We're not lucky. She's an um, extremely professional and well thought of person in her field. But my, my wife got headhunted, so she got a job straight away. So we were secure in that way. But we decided as a family, like while I was playing rugby, eh, just personally, like... I, I, I really admire people and, and families that there's two parents working, going out and 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 um, uh, doing their best for the kids, which is extremely admirable. I was always quite conscious that if possible, that we, we as a family would have one parent as a full-time carer, if at all possible. So while I was playing rugby, my kids, both my kids were born and you know, so my wife's a full-time parent for four or five, five, six years, and which was fantastic. So when I retired, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Uh, you know, um, I had an engineering qualification, so I tried that for six months after retiring. And I thought in the first week, oh, do you know what? Um, I'm a little bit... Um, uh, Oh, spoiled here. Um, I had the greatest career in the world now. Now I'm into the real world and I don't really like this, but, you know, 
bar up like come on Peter you you had the dream job now this is reality you, you begin to like it six months down the line I just realized I had no passion for for that type of stuff anymore and it was beginning to get me down so and we were both kind of working and trying to make it but then we said you know what I as a family I would go full-time parenting and it was brilliant like I would if at all possible now you have to make you do have to make sacrifices there's financial stuff that you know you might you might have to sacrifice but just for me personally it was worth everything a hundred times over um that i could actually rear my own kids and you know that's just for me invaluable um so i did that for uh a couple of years and that was just really really fantastic because you know i was beginning to think i felt a little bit on you know that I could have done a little bit more in my rugby career, but, you know, and that's playing on your mind. But when you're a full-time parent, you know, that goes out the window pretty quickly because you have stuff to get on with and get doing. So I did that. But then I said, look, the kids are getting on great. You know, everything's fine. Um, What do I do next? You know, just for myself and for everything else, I'd like to have something in. uh, I applied for jobs sent a hundred um, CVs away, got zero replies, zero replies because of that whole thing about, oh, you don't tick the box, Peter. You know, we need someone with whatever, you know, 10 years experience in our field. Well, you know, it's never going to, you know. And plus management and, and all that kind of skills are farther up the tree that where I would really excel at, you know, you know, um, you know, leading people and stuff like that. Whereas at the time, things may have changed now, but I, I basically I had no choice but to go self-employed, which I was fine with. And I set up, and so what can I do? Um, look, when you play rugby, there's only a certain amount of coaching jobs. There's only a certain amount of punditry jobs you can get afterwards. So, you know, vast majority of guys have to go into the normal workforce. So I um, started... Um, um, uh, so I set up my scrum doctor business. So I saw a niche. I saw something that was absolutely needed. I did my market research, did the whole lot. Every club, any rugby person I talked to said, we really need what you have, Peter. We need expert world-class coaching in the front row and in, in the scrum, just specifically the scrum, because it's the one area of the game. It's the most technical area of the game. It's one of the more dangerous areas of the game and also just the least amount of knowledge and coaching ability in that uh, area of the game. So every club wants it. I did it. I put everything into that for three years. There is a market, but I found the market is not in Ireland and the UK. And I wasn't just with family and everything uh, willing to move abroad to do that. Um, that's something now I might pursue again down the line. Um, there's definitely huge potentials in, in emerging nations. What I found was that everyone wants the coaching, but no one wants to pay for it. <laughs> so, so you're pretty much wasting your time. Now, in my market research, it people are saying, yeah, of course we would pay for it, but when it actually comes to it, you know, and... It's, it's either that clubs don't genuinely have the money to pay for it or 
they're actually getting good coaching from the rugby unions in every other aspect of the game, apart from the scrum, apart from the scrum. So they're not used to paying for it. So they're used to getting stuff for free. So when you come along and ask for money, well, then oh, the phone line goes kind of, you know, quiet and whatever. So, but what a great experience about going self-employed, running a business, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that has stood to me. So the long and the short of it, um, uh, I went broke, all the rest, uh, started to get back together, did the rugby. And so, but while I was building the scrum business, I was still a full-time parent as well, which was fantastic. I've pretty much been a full-time parent since. It was a six-month period there that um, three years ago, just to supplement my income, I ended up selling cars for um, a couple of months. And day one, I got into the electric car, a Nissan Leaf for the first time. And oh my God, I couldn't believe how good it was. I couldn't believe the acceleration and just the performance. I said, these are amazing. Um, everyone's going to want one of these. They're just so much better. Like within 10 seconds of driving an electric car, I said, oh, these are the future. These are just far superior than, you know, petrol or diesel cars. These are going to be brilliant. That was three years ago. People are beginning to, to go, you know, talk about electric cars. Back then, it was absolute, oh, you're, you know, some sort of... Um, I don't know, crazy person. That's crazy talk, Peter, you know, um, with those newfangled electric cars. They'll never take off, you know. But thankfully, we've gone past that. Um, but it was brilliant. So, and that was a Nissan Leaf. Lovely, lovely car. But, you know, a, a five, you know, above standard pretty much for an electric um, family car. It, it wasn't like a rock. It wasn't a high performance jobby. But the acceleration was just amazing. I said, if there's the performance here in that car, which is, how good are the top end cars? So I, I, I um, yeah. So I've driven a, um, a Tesla S and a Tesla X and all that. And oh my God, I, I, <laughs> I actually hired um, a a Tesla X from UFO Drive. They're um, yeah, they're the guys. Um, an Irish guy started. They're in Luxembourg, but they're basically the electric car rental, and they were so easy to rent. That was the number one thing. I just needed a car, and I didn't want to wait for two hours to fill up paperwork. But the second thing, you know, electric car. I just wanted to get into the a Tesla X for a day just to experience it. Oh my god, I I went. I went 600 miles out of my, <laughs> I did my day's work and then I just went on a tour around Ireland just to experience the car <laughs> and the acceleration. You know, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't driving dangerously, but if I had a chance to slow down just to accelerate, I, um, I kept, you know, so I, yeah. Um, so again, you know, um, and, and, and then, but pretty much when, when you start talking about electric cars, then you get hit immediately with all the objections and whatnot. So I, I decided, but that day, three years ago, in, in, in that car, I said, oh my God, something kind of hit me, one of those life-changing moments. I said, just all, I was always sustainably conscious. Now, I wasn't an eco-warrior. I wasn't going living in a tree and, and all that kind of stuff. I like my technology. I like my luxuries, but I realized, but I'd always have recycled. I grew up on a farm, so everything was reused. There was no waste. There was, that was just in me. My grandparents, my parents were like that. 
So um, I said, you know what, there's all the technologies in the world to be extremely sustainable. You don't need to be burning stuff to be moving stuff or heating stuff anymore. The technology is there. Let's get to it. So I became, so immediately I said, look, what can I do as one person, as a dad? What can I do to lower my carbon footprint? And I just went about doing it. And, you know, there's about 20 things you can do. I said, look, I'll do one thing a week. I had about five of them done within the first couple of days because it, they were just easy. And I find if there's 20 things you can do, there's, there's about five of them that are, for, for any particular person, are really easy. There's five that are going to be very, quite challenging. And then there's 10 in the middle that are, you know, once you do them once or twice, happy dates. So start with what's easy for you. So for me, changing to electric car, easy, easy. Like for me, personally, that's just no brainer, totally. Change my electricity to 100% renewable, easy. For someone else now, changing a car to electric could be a big thing that they might, but they might be very easy for them to go vegan or to not go vegan, but lower their meat intake. I'm a meat eater. I love my chops and my steak and whatever. So that's been more of a challenge. But I, I went for the low, high, low hanging fruit first. And I have, I've even lessened my meat content. Now I'm a big supporter, a big believer in sustainable and holistic farming and using uh, basically the Alan Savory type management of, that you can you can eat meat and you can have cows and you can have if they're sustainably farmed and local and done properly. This big huge monoculture industrial farming is destroying the planet. But if if you if you farm properly, you can save the planet. I think if one type of person can save the planet, it's farmers, you know, and uh, but we can all help with, with reducing our energy. So that, that, was, that was what inspired me. And um, I've continued to do that in my life. And, and uh, the thing I, I try to talk to people just in my own network about is my life has improved. It, um, it certainly has, a worst case scenario, stayed the same. I've the same standard of living. And I reckon I have a higher standard of living, actually. But you know, your standard of living is not going to go down. And I think that's what people are afraid of. Oh, if I make all these changes, oh, like, you know, we'll be going back 100 years, back into the dark ages. No, you won't. You, you'll be fine. It would be my, just give it a try. Give it, give it a try. Wow. So really a lot to digest there. And I'm glad you transitioned on to electric vehicles. You touched upon the reason you first found electric vehicles amazing. And that was the performance aspect, the acceleration, etc. I think with EVs, there are many different reasons for that initial excitement. For some, it can be the performance, as you just mentioned. And for others, it can be the sustainability aspect. It was also really interesting hearing you talk about the different changes you can make in your life to become sustainable. And you mentioned giving up meat, which would be harder for you, but changing to an EV would be easier. I think with EVs, it often really depends on the country you live in and the infrastructure available. I know that you've lived in Ireland, England, and France for a short time too. How would you describe the EV landscape in Ireland overall? Um, I think we're similar enough to the UK, um, but maybe a little bit behind, a little bit behind. We tend to, like even cars, cars in Ireland, uh, they, they tend to be launched, they come to the UK 
a new model arrives in the UK. It's about six months later that it arrives in Ireland. So for the actual car, so, you know, the new Nissan Aira or however you pronounce that, that right. So, sorry, better example, the, the new electric MG5, um, it, it arrived in the UK, I think, about six months ago or something. It's just arrived like in the last couple of weeks here in Ireland. So we're a little, but that's fine. It, it eventually comes. Um, infrastructure is getting better. Like there's no reason right now why you can't drive EV. And Ireland is just perfect because it's a small country. These cars can do 250 miles um, on one charge. So you leave home, charge up. There's nowhere you can go from one place to the next in Ireland, really. That's very much more than 400 kilometers. So, you know, Ireland is a great test case, you know, and, um, uh, you know, the countryside, um, everyone has plugs in their house. Like when I go to my mom's, I just run a lead from the, the kitchen and, uh, you know, go out there. But a lot of people don't realize that you can just plug from anywhere. So people ask, people do say, oh, there's not the infrastructure. There's not the public charge and I get stuck. My answer is, well, first of all, you'd be charging from home for 98% of your journey. So you're going to be okay. Oh, well, if I need to go to Dublin and drop my mom at the airport, oh, what will I do? I said, you'll get there, no problem. From, oh, not from Mayo. Sure, that's my way. I said, yeah, from Mayo, from the other side of the country, you will get to Dublin. You get from Mayo to Dublin, no problem, one charge will be fine. Oh, really? Oh, okay, okay, that's fine. And what will I do then? I said, well, sure, charge at Dublin Airport, or, you know, will you need a pee or will you need to, um, you know, have a coffee or whatever? Oh, I will on the way back. Yeah, stop, have a coffee, recharge, you're going to be fine. So, um, uh, so the charging is there, but I, I ask people, how many um, charges do you think you are? People don't see them until, until you start light, driving electric. You see these chargers everywhere, but if you're driving a petrol, I never really noticed them until I started driving electric. Now I see them everywhere and you get to know them. And I'm not the most organized person in the world, but, you know, I'll... I'll I'll have the car charged. I know where I'm going. I know where the stops are. There's the app on the phone. There's the app on the car. I can stop here, charge away. Um, so it, it, it definitely needs to get better. It is getting better. Um, you know, supermarkets and destination charging is becoming a good thing. Um, I think there's a lot of businesses at the moment that are, I believe, are installing chargers in their company car parks that when COVID goes that, you know, uh, people will be able to charge, you know, at work and, and, and whatnot, you know, okay, the councils are a little bit hesitant about charging and there's a lot of paperwork to go through, but all those issues are being overcome. And, you know, I think the more people see these chargers, like two years ago, when I stopped to charge, at least one person would come over and say, oh, you're charging, I've never seen that before, whatever, and have a good chat. No one comes over anymore because it's standard. Like people see these cars being charged and we're getting close to the pivot point here in Ireland. So long and short of it, I'd say we might be charging infrastructure maybe a year or so behind the UK. Um, I haven't driven over in France, you know, electric yet um, uh, or in Europe where I lived. So, um, but I would always say, how many charges do you think there are 
in the world or whatever. And they say, oh, maybe a million chargers or whatever. I don't know. I don't even know what. But I say, no, there's, there's probably about 100 billion or uh, like at least 10 billion. They say, what? What are you talking about? I said, in this room now, and be, you'd be talking in this kitchen. I say, there's, there's at least six. I can see six charge points here. I said, where? Where? Oh, or, or you can charge from here and you can charge from, yeah, yeah, it just takes longer. Absolutely, it'll take longer, but, you know, it'll get you to the next charger, you know, you charge overnight. So, you know, even if you're out in the sticks, once you have electricity, you can charge a car. And, um, uh, but the home charging is going to be the greatest thing ever because, you know, People are used to charging mobile phones overnight, ready to go in the morning. But it's just that whole mindset of um, getting over that barrier that, okay, lithium-ion batteries, they're slightly, they're different in cars than they are in phones, but um, it's the same principle. Most people, you charge overnight, you're ready to go in the morning. And you yep. can charge and you can save money and you can have smart meters and, and all this kind of stuff that you can charge when it's the cheapest, when when renewable energy is at its highest and, and all the rest. And, I, you know, I'm sure you get this all the time, Ryan, but I, I just feel, feel the education. Education, like anything, is the most important thing. Once you can have a conversation with someone about it and they're open-minded enough to listen, you know, it sows a seed in their head that this is definitely doable and okay if you can walk somewhere walk if you can cycle cycle absolutely that's the way i do i say can i walk there no can i cycle yeah uh, okay uh can i use public transport is the public transport electric even better okay i'm out in the countryside here in in ireland there's no electric buses okay i need to get to a car i you know so last case scenario okay i need to use a car when I'm going to go electric, I'm not going to go petrol or diesel. So, you know, if you can get someone from a diesel, it, it's going to be difficult in Ireland anyway, because the infrastructure, the public infrastructure is only average. To get someone from a diesel car into a bus, it's easier to get them into an electric car. And then it might be easier to get them into a bus. Then it might be easier to get them cycling or walking or whatever. So it's definitely progress. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I also agree that education is the number one priority in the mass adoption of EVs. So in terms of your EV interest and potentially creating business opportunities out of it, do you think you'll be able to harness your network from your rugby career and the people you've met throughout your career so far? Oh, definitely. Like rugby is a huge uh, network and a very positive one you know it's um uh and i suppose any one piece of advice it came to me naturally anyway like i'd I'd be quite sociable and i'd be out you know i didn't even know i was doing it but technically i would have been networking i was with with fans and 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 people around rugby clubs i was just chatting and having the fun and the crack and a bit of banter and what whatever but it it all helps it's it can be a little bit more difficult for other 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 people but you know um i think while you're playing and it's very important one piece of advice i would have for players at the moment is just to network and talk to the fans and talk and, and, and do it anyway, because, you know, that's part of your job. But, and, and 
like, you know, you don't have to have an ulterior motive or anything like that, but you just, like, there's um, people that I've engaged with while I was playing, we're still friends, we build up friendships, you know, fans and, and all that, and, and down through the years, and, you know, I, I can, and people are in different industries, and yeah, it's it's a huge network, and and people now know I I are beginning to realise I'm in the whole sustainability electric mobility uh, sphere, and you know that'll uh, hopefully lead to, and it is it is leading to uh, conversations and opportunities and different partnerships, and you know I I have a big project that I can't kind of name at the moment that I'm gearing up for and you know hopefully 2022 when this COVID is is over we'll be ready to launch and ready to do it um and it's just all about how global sport is tackling climate change and bringing the whole <laughs> rugby analogy in there and it and it's winning uh and um, you know global sport the global sporting emissions in the world is similar to the country of Spain. You know, so it has, between professional and amateur sport, it has a high carbon footprint. And, you know, it hasn't been an area of that has been really looked at in any great depth. And, you know, there are solutions out there for all sporting clubs and organizations to use to go uh, reduce their carbon footprint, which will obviously be great for the environment, but it'll be great for their bank balance as well. Like clubs are struggling, like after, especially in COVID, like clubs are really at the pin of their collar and they'll want to be saving money, first of all, so that they survive. So there's many, many solutions that they can look into to lower their costs and be more environmentally friendly. So that's a pro, and I want to use my sporting profile to highlight all these um, solutions. So that's a project to have down the line and I have partnership opportunities available. Um, right now I can't officially launch because I want to get all my ducks in a row so we're ready to go. Um, but but ha happy to talk and you, you know it will it will make headline news like it will there'll be a lot of publicity around a lot of positive publicity around it. We'll be getting my sporting contacts and high profile, you know, sports people involved in it. So yeah, looking forward to it. Um, but it is like sport is a great network. Um, but, but even, um, you know, like starting off up a business, you know, and um, running a business, it turns out, it turned out to be more of a hobby business now, but the whole scrum doctor, that was a real learning curve. Um, um, so I suppose because I was a professional athlete, people, it breaks the ice straight away, like just in a business sense that people, so that's validation. Okay, this guy was a professional athlete, so he's serious about what he does um, and he's resilient and he, he'll get the job done, okay? But people, I feel, now maybe it's a subconscious thing with me, maybe it's just me, but I do find that okay, he was good at rugby and whatever, you know, is he any good business? Is he just a beefcake that played a bit of rugby and wants to get on a jolly now for the rest of his life? 
has he substance behind that, like in a business sense or in a in a commercial sense? And you know, that's where that's what I have to prove. And I do believe, you know, as, as soon as people get to talk to me, they say that's, you know, so. I, I think I've bought going from me there. I have the whole connections and the sports side of things, but I, I also know how how things work and business and get things done. So, um, yeah, but definitely it's it's like anything else. Like I'm building a, in the last three years, I, I've always had rugby connections, and that has been really helpful. But I I've evolved a new whole new um, network of people within electric mobility and sustainability and and great people and I find it such a positive area because it's so new and it's 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 so good you know if I was to go into the oil industry now I think I would lose the will to live because you're you're just doing bad you're doing bad like I I I'm very simple with a lot of things is something good or bad is a person good or bad you know, but with renewable energy, electric energy, sustainability, it's all good and it attracts positive, good people that genuinely want to want to make a difference. So I get a great kick out of it. And I did one thing about when I retired from rugby, I was a little bit concerned just for mental health. Now, I worked through it and I because of I was aware of it, I did something about it. But I was I was afraid that. Will I ever find anything else that I'm as passionate about? Uh, will I, you know, be able to dedicate my time and effort and my life to something important? I have my family. That's number one. So, yes, that's there. But is there a professional thing that I could do? I tried a few different things, didn't have the passion for it, but knew when to leave that and go. And, I, and, and that day I got into a, that Nissan Leaf, I said, this is it. It just clicked in me. It was the same buzz I got from playing rugby. I can make a difference. And and it's it started with electric cars, but then it's gone into the whole mobility, but then it's gone into sustainability, energy. It all intertwines. And I just find people in, in this industry, in the wider industry, renewable energy and sustainability and electric mobility, open-minded, forward-thinking people and... Uh, yeah, it's 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 yeah. I've I've developed a passion for it, and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, and I find that really inspirational that you've managed to discover this passion for EVs. And you know, that's one of the reasons I'm doing the podcast today because I've also grown a passion for the industry, and I love speaking to like-minded individuals like yourself who want to make the world a better place through sustainable transportation. I'd also love to have you back on the podcast when you have more information on your project. So let's dive into some quickfire questions now. Firstly, what is your favorite electric vehicle at the moment? Um, Nissan Leaf. But I can't wait for the Cybertruck to come along. Great answer. And two very different sides of the EV world as well. What are you most looking forward to in 2021? Getting to fully charged live event in uh i want to drive over to uk and want to drive to that in in my electric car and just to meet people that i can only meet online or whatever okay great and i'm also looking to attend myself hopefully next question what do you think the biggest misconception about electric vehicles is cost of ownership uh people think they're way more expensive because the list price is that bit more expensive but 
rule of thumb with me is within a year, 18 months, you, you've saved that difference. And then from then on, you're actually saving money. So it's actually cheaper. It's cheaper to own an electric vehicle day in, day out. Um, and, you know, but in two, three years, three years time, it will be the same price. So, you know, people won't, there'll be absolutely no excuse. Um, so if an electric vehicle is six, seven grand more to buy, people think, oh, they're way more expensive or whatever. But, you know, uh, you'll make that up within a year, 18 months. So I don't think that's, yeah. So, but people don't real, realize that. When they, but when they sit down and do the results, do the sums, it becomes quite obvious. Yeah, and I completely agree with you on that. Okay, so a bit more of a personal question related to your journey so far. What advice would you give to a former sports person hoping to transition into a new career completely different to sports? Uh, network, network, and do a bit more networking uh, while you're playing. And do it genuinely. Now, don't have a, an issue or don't have a, you know, just, just talk to people and you never know who's, who's going to be. Uh, and. Um, oh, I had another thing, I had a quick one, network and ah, it might come to me, but yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer. And especially with tools like LinkedIn, it's never been an easier time to network with new people. So what other things do you do that you would consider sustainable on a daily basis, aside from driving an EV? Well, I do something absolutely ridiculously mad and I don't expect anyone else to do this, but I haven't turned on heating in three or four years. Wow, I wish I could say the same thing, but that's pretty incredible, but also not that surprising given you're a former professional rugby player. I would say to people though that before you decide to turn up the temperature in your house, do consider wearing a jumper or warmer clothes as that's a much more cost-effective and sustainable way of keeping yourself warm inside. Is there one thing or one person that inspired you to have a passion for e-mobility? Yeah, probably Robert Llewellyn, to be honest. Well, you've given me a great opportunity to plug my episode with him too. One thing I'd say is he and Fully Charged have made the industry a little bit more digestible and entertaining to people like you and I, who might not be familiar with the science and technical jargon behind electric vehicles. That's absolutely, yeah. No, I can see, like, with me, I... I'm not a detail. I don't know. I'm not an absolute expert in electric vehicles, the inner workings of, you know, but I know what's fun to drive and I know what looks good. And I know, you know, a bit. So I suppose I can relate to him. I, he's very relatable, I, I think. And the whole fully charged crew, I think uh, Roger Atkins, Roger does amazing work as well. There's, there's a lot of really great um, ambassadors out there. And, you know, Roger's been doing it from day one, you know, um, and I'm only uh, new to the game, you know, and like the amount of effort and work he's put in, you know, in 10, 12 years to highlight it when, you know, people would have thought he was crazy 12 years ago, you know, so good on him and, and everyone else of all those original people that, persisted in the early days when it was absolutely not mainstream, when you were most likely considered a bit of um, an aloof or something, you know? So Yeah, and I don't see why you can't become the next Robert Llewellyn or Roger Atkins. You come from a very unique angle that you don't see every day, and I hope you can be successful at it as well. So we finish every episode by asking our guest if there's anything they'd like to plug that they are working on at the moment. 
Yeah, well, basically that's it, uh, uh, Ryan. I am using sport and my sporting profile to, um, try, you know, to transition people to a more sustainable uh, life, and and you know that's what I can bring to the party and do for humanity. Because as a father, I want to leave the planet in a better, cleaner state for my kids and their kids and grandkids and and all the rest. So. And we need to get it done pretty quickly. The time is now. You know, we don't, you know, we knew about it back in the 70s. We've done nothing about it until now. And we really need to get cracking on this. And, um, yeah, if I I can highlight stuff, um, get my face out there, not because of my own personal ego, but it's just to, you know, I I can maybe, yeah, I, I, I believe an awful lot of people can relate to me and can relate to sport and can relate the transition. And, um, y- you know, I will be asking for help. So if, 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 if you'd like to see what it's all about, please contact me and how we can collaborate with, with, with companies. And, any, you know, I, I'm very interested to reach out to, companies within the renewable energy, e-mobility, sustainability, construction, uh, sustainable construction um, uh, industries. If you're genuinely proactively being going green, not greenwashing, because I, I know straight away, um, if you're genuinely doing good stuff that way, I'm here to promote that in, in the best way I can. And you know, yeah, and we can do that. Perfect. Thank you for joining the podcast, Peter. Thank you, Ryan. Great chatting. Really enjoyed it. It was a unique opportunity to welcome Peter to the podcast to discuss his transition from professional rugby player to e-mobility advocate, the state of EV charging in Ireland, and his upcoming project in 2022. We'll be back for another episode soon. Revolution Conference 2021 is just 170 days away. Register today at revolutionconference.com.